Thanks so much for being here this morning. For those that may not know them or for those that don't see them here this morning, our lead pastor, Pastor Matt Rawlings and his family are on vacation this morning. I'm sure they would appreciate your prayers just for refreshment as they are away. I'm grateful that they can have this opportunity just to get away for a few days. They'll be back in town later this week and be back again with us worshiping next Sunday. This morning we're going to take the opportunity to pick up a, a little mini-series that began early last year looking at the book of First John. So you can open your Bibles to First John chapter 4 where we will read out of in just a few moments. Would you pray with me that God would use his word to affect our hearts this morning? Father, we thank you that you give us this privilege, the freedom that we enjoy to come to you and worship you as we believe you have called us to do, to study your word together, to hear you speak to us. We ask that that is what we are aware of this morning as we gather, as we open your word. We ask that you move by your spirit upon our hearts. Lord, we, we come here desiring that you transform us. We desire that we would not go out from here the same way that we came in. That's only possible by your work. You moving, illumining, revealing. So we ask that you would do what we cannot do. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and that we would respond. In your name we pray. Amen. We live in what is often referred to as the information age. I'm sure they'll come up with a new name for what we're going through any day now. But the information age is this recognition of the spectacular increase in the ability to store and transmit data and information over the last number of decades and the impact that has had on our economy and on all of society. All the way back in 1945, it was calculated that a library could double its capacity with new material every 16 years if it had the space to do so. The rapid increase in the amount of published information available in the early 1960s produced much discussion about the information explosion that was taking place. And in case you're unaware, the pace has only picked up exponentially since then not just in the public sphere of published information, but in the personal one as well, and our ability to interact with vast quantities of data. In the early 80s, the computer began to cement its place in the business and increasingly in homes. And you could, if you chose to do so, 
carry around a double-sided five-and-a-quarter-inch floppy disk that could hold a whopping 360 kilobytes of information. Plug it into your DOS 2.0 computer. By the late 80s, the more compact three-and-a-half-inch disk took over with the high capacity of 1.44 megabytes of data that it could hold. And it remained the standard into the 90s, meaning that the little 16-gigabyte thumb drive I walked in with this morning in my pocket could contain over 11,000 of those disks that held the standard just 20 years ago. Not to mention the 10 or or the, the 100 or 500 times capacity that your computer at home or your backup drive can contain. But it's not just the capacity to store information that has increased exponentially, it's also the ability to access it. Particularly through the internet, we have access to information from around the globe and really even beyond as we can look at pictures from the Hubble telescope and satellites like we never have had access to before. When I was in college, the internet technically was a thing, but not one that I had any personal exposure to. A computer was a word processor for me, an expensive machine that I did papers on so that I didn't have to use whiteout. Now, parents can explain later to their kids what that product was. The Encyclopedia Britannica, another reference they may be unfamiliar with, of that day contained 33 volumes. It could be obtained for roughly $2,000 and was still being sold door to door. If you needed more extensive research than what the encyclopedia provided, it required a trip to the library and often requests for resources from multiple other libraries. Today, I can access more information using my phone that I carry around in my pocket than any king or scholar has had available in the history of mankind prior to our lifetime. We have resources at our fingertips that Copernicus, Da Vinci, and Einstein couldn't have imagined. The computing power in your smartphone is millions of times more powerful than all of NASA's combined computing in 1969, the year they first landed a man on the moon. So it seems appropriate that we use these miracle devices to watch cat videos and send each other smiley faces. Maybe, just maybe we're squandering some of the gifts that we've been given just a bit. This age of information can be a daunting place to exist. It has no shortage of experts, both real and imagined, ready to offer their opinion on anything and everything, including God and what we should believe about him. Plenty can't claim to speak for God or to have some authority from which to speak about God. Much more than just religious leaders, the list includes politicians, 
talk show hosts, science program on TV, musicians and other assorted celebrities, the latest pseudo-inspirational Facebook post making the rounds, and on and on, all with the ability to share their opinions instantly with the world. Add to that more books on my shelf than I'll ever read, more podcasts and sermons than I can possibly listen to, and more news than I can ever keep up with. Besides, the overwhelming volume we're confronted with is the fact that there are so many different voices constantly bombarding us. So many different perspectives. How do we know who to listen to? Is something safe because its author attends church? Or because it has a four and a half star rating on Amazon? How do we discern that which is genuinely profitable from that which is attractively packaged poison. Now John's readers may not have had the volume of voices that we encounter, but they had the same need for discernment that we have. In 1 John chapter 4, the apostle warns his readers about the many false prophets that have gone out into the world. He recognized that the young church was in danger of listening to the wrong voices, of being swayed and misled by those speaking with just enough truth to convince them to walk an alternate path, or of not recognizing the difference between a message originating from the spirit of truth and a deception coming from the angel of light. One of the recurring themes we've observed as we looked at the book of First John as the need to watch out for false teachers. And that's where we're going to jump in again today in chapter 4. We have a really simple outline and theme. It's that by their message, we discern the spirits. And by the Spirit, we put on courage. So please read with me the first six verses Chapter 4, 1 John. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. 
By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So by their message, we discern the spirits. In verse 1, John tells us that many false prophets have gone out into the world, so don't believe every spirit. Instead, test them to see whether they are from God. Earlier this week, I received a voicemail informing me that the IRS was filing a lawsuit against me. That wasn't my first response. I left the number that I needed to call immediately. Now, I have Jim Britt's old phone number, so my first thought was, oh, please let that be for Jim. <laughs> Not me. Fortunately, after regaining my senses from the initial shock of the serious nature, the alarming call, a couple of questions came to mind, like, why does it have a Seattle area code? Why, why haven't I gotten some kind of official, written documentation of this emergency? And I, therefore, searched the number, found out that it was connected to a scam using IRS warnings, and I promptly deleted the voicemail. Apparently, not everyone invoking the name of the IRS truly speaks for them, much to my relief, and Jim's had he known. Well, not everyone claiming to speak for God or about God truly speaks for him either. John says many false prophets have gone into the world. Now, now prophets aren't um, just this group of robed, bearded guys that pronounce judgment. A prophet can be anyone um, claiming to speak for God or proclaim what he is like, especially as John uses the term here, which means it, it can be a college professor reaching beyond his subject matter. It can be a pop singer seeking an emotional reaction from their audience. It can be a movie with grand ambitions, an author with an axe to grind, a misguided talk show host taking a stab at pop psychology, or a wild-eyed sect leader. As much as it can be a preacher in a pulpit or a teacher at a Bible college, a prophet is someone claiming to speak for God. And John makes clear that many who make such claims, well, they have no business doing so. They are imposters. So John says, don't believe every spirit. Well, we have God's word, so why would we need to listen to anyone that claims to speak for God today? Well, the reality is that God still chooses to speak through people. God has appointed pastors and teachers to proclaim his word to his people. He has appointed every believer that we should proclaim his message to a lost world. When we do so, we are having 
a prophetic role in proclaiming who he is, what he is like to those that need to hear his message. And the reality is that even in an age with an overwhelming abundance of information and data, we are still required to relate to God by faith. Because we don't yet see him. Our faith is based not just on data, but on a message. A message about who God is and what He has done. And in our age of information overload, a million different voices want to tell us their version of that message. The volume of data available does not reveal that faith is futile and it does not remove our need for it. All we see and touch and observe does not compel us to give up our faith in God like some prophets today might proclaim. God has declared that the time for us to surrender our our faith is when we see Him face to face. Then we will walk by sight and will no longer have need for faith or hope because we will finally be with the object of our faith and on that day, love alone will remain. We will enjoy a relationship with Him with the veil removed. No longer will we need to trust in the unseen. but We will love the one we see and embrace and relate to face to face. But until then, we have his word and his spirit and we seek to do our best to know him through a mirror dimly and to discern what is true about him in the midst of the bombardment of compelling testimonies partial truths, and outright lies that come our way. And John, the apostolic father, caring for his beloved flock, doesn't say just watch out for false teachers. He also gives his readers tools to evaluate whether the prophets they encounter truly speak for God or for someone else. So what specific key does he give to administer this test, this evaluation to the myriad voices that are coming their way and coming our way? In verse 2, we read, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Everyone that does not confess it is not from God. So does that mean that any person or spirit who can utter those words is from God? If that were so, then wouldn't our role be, let's hold somebody under the water until they're willing to confess and say such words, because then obviously they're filled with the Spirit and from God. No, clearly, the rest of Scripture would not allow for such an interpretation. It's not that these are some magical words. Consider a passage like we find in Luke chapter 4. 
verses 31 through 35, we read that Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, which seems like a funny place to find a man with an unclean demon in the synagogue as Jesus is teaching. And the demon, he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. When the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. The funny thing is, this isn't really an isolated incident for Jesus. There were numerous times we read in Scripture of interactions he had with demons where they would start to proclaim who he was, even what he had come to do, and yet he commanded them to be silent. He would rebuke them and stop them from being the ones that would hold testimony about him. See, if it was just a matter of confessing theological facts, then where does that leave the demons? James makes it clear that it isn't for lack of knowledge that they stand condemned. I mean, do we really think that we've accumulated more understanding of God in our 20 or 40 or 60 years than the millennia that they've been observing and relating to him. Their limitation isn't an inability to utter a phrase, but the fact that their wills are set in opposition to him and all that that phrase represents. The phrase, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, isn't some kind of magic incantation or secret password that only true, genuine Christians really know about. The test is whether one's broader confession and testimony lines up with Jesus Christ come in the flesh. The man, Jesus. The fact that He is the Christ, the promised Messiah and Son of God Himself. And He actually came to earth in the flesh. He was fully God, fully man. He still is fully God, fully man. Born of a virgin, he lived a sinless life, thereby fulfilling the law. He was crucified for your sins and mine. He was raised to new life, ascended and seated, now at the right hand of the Father. It's not just the words, Jesus Christ come in the flesh, but the message they contain, the truth about who Jesus is and what kind of God he reveals, a God who pursues. God who seeks and saves. God who has 
left heaven and the glory that he rightly was worthy of, constantly being sung and worshipped and leaving that to be humbled, coming in human flesh. That he might walk among those who were alienated from him. That he might be punished by them and for them. What kind of a God he reveals himself to be? Not one that just is pointing his finger or commanding us to do whatever he wills one that has gone himself and been broken for you and for I to stand in our place. This is the God that he reveals himself to be through Jesus Christ come in the flesh. The confession of who Christ is is more than just a statement of his identity. Who he is is central So the good news he came to proclaim. His coming meant that the kingdom of God had arrived. That the physician had come to heal the sick and the broken. That the captives were about to be set free. The gospel itself is wrapped up in his true identity. God himself incarnated in the flesh so that he could save and redeem, rescuing sinners that have no hope apart from him. Paul stated the importance of this central message, these truths very clearly in Galatians 1.8 when he said, but if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you? Not shame on him. Let him be accursed. He's calling a curse on himself if he should preach a gospel different from that which has been delivered. Good news different than what Christ revealed when he came and became one of us died for us and rose to new life. It's it's not this phrase that is the test, but the truth it represents on which heaven and hell hang in the balance, whose realities have eternal consequences attached to them. According uh, According to the apostle, it is consistency with this message of who Jesus is and what he accomplished, that is the defining mark of whether or not someone truly speaks for God. If someone tries to change Jesus into something different, into something lesser, a good teacher, even a prophet, perhaps a martyr, a really cool moral guide. If we try and change who he is, or 
if we proclaim a different mission that he supposedly came to accomplish, such as coming to make you healthy or wealthy now, or that it is up to you to somehow earn his love, or that his mission was to show you the way to self-actualize and attain your own planet, whatever the message is that's a different mission and what has already been revealed here, well, anyone speaking those things are not from God. The gospel of the true Christ cannot be improved upon. It can't. There is no greater revelation than what we have already been given. I mean, who of us could have dared to dream how good this news already is? Who of us could have said, you know what? Yeah, we have rebelled against you. I know the way to fix that. God, you should come down here. You should die in our place. The glory of the gospel is this, that the one from whom we need to be saved is the very one who saved us. None of us could have imagined that, or thought that up, or had the boldness to ask for that from the almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, judge of all the universe. And yet that's the role that he took upon himself. Friends, you cannot imagine a more glorious gospel than what we've already been given. There is no greater revelation that could be devised that would make him more glorious, more worthy of our worship and adoration and love. No modern day guru is going to improve upon what we have already been given. Now, does that mean that every person claiming to speak for God yet failing to speak the truth about Jesus is intentionally setting themselves up in opposition to him, animated by this spirit of the Antichrist that's referred to here? Could some simply be uninformed or confused? Certainly. John is not saying that every teacher with bad theology is possessed or controlled by some malicious spirit, but he is saying that those claiming to speak for him, yet proclaiming a false gospel, are not from God. And though they may be unwitting in their opposition to the truth about Jesus, they have bought into the lies of one who has set himself up in opposition to God. An angel of light that is actively seeking to distort, to manipulate, and to deceive regarding who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. What I find striking here is that there is no middle ground. There is no third option, a category for, well, bless their heart. They're trying No, either they agree with this message and are from God in doing so. 
where what they proclaim is actually in opposition to God. Now, the way spirit with small s is used in these verses isn't speaking primarily of an otherworldly being that lacks a physical body, but really any idea, any philosophy, any teaching or system that seeks to come and inform and tell us who God is. We aren't called to test unseen beings, but every philosophy and teaching that claims to speak for God. Are they faithful to what has clearly been revealed, or do they propose alternate good news? Does this teaching, this system, show appreciation and affection for Christ above all? Or does it seek to bring attention to the speaker? Does it point back to the eternal truths? Or does it seek to improve on the apostolic message? If someone utters the words, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, but the rest of their message undermines or departs from the hope-filled, life-giving meaning of those, that those words represent, friends, they are not from God. Wittingly or not, the source is ultimately one that is in opposition to the true and living Christ. It is not without reason that James says, not many of you should become teachers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. There is a seriousness to taking on the responsibility to speak for God, to represent Him, to confess about Him. And so it's by their message that we discern the spirits. It's by their understanding and confession of who Jesus is and what he has done that they reveal their origin. It's by the spirit that we are to put on courage. As we look at the last three verses, there are many false prophets gone into the world and John calls us to be discerning their existence, the existence of false prophets, of lying spirits, should not cause us to give way to despair or to fear. I, I don't know about you, but I'll admit that there are times when the number of false voices and the influence they have upon our society, that's just daunting. It can tempt us to lose hope. It can be confusing what to do when sympathetic stories, claims to God's love, are used to promote ungodly agendas. It can tempt us to despair and discouragement when we look around us and observe the tide of popular sentiment growing seemingly less and less tolerant by the day. of the exclusive message of Christ and what he has done. That's not a new predicament for Christians. It seems to me that John is particularly in tune with how the presence of false prophets and the spirit of the Antichrist would be wearying and cause disturbance for the disciples. 
Look at the tender and reassuring language he uses throughout these short verses. In verse 1, just the very first words, he, he calls them beloved. He reminds them not only from his own affection, but the affection of God himself, that they are loved by God. And here in verse 4, he refers to them as his little children. He follows that with a reassurance that though there may be many who falsely represent God, that they, his readers, they are from God. They have overcome those false spirits. They have the Spirit, capital S Spirit, dwelling within them, who is greater than any other spirit inhabiting the world. Again, in verse 6, he tells them, we, including him, and them, same category, we are from God. Reminds them that anyone who, who knows God will listen to them before finally concluding with a reminder that he's telling them all this because they can and will know and discern between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Our hope is not in ourselves or our willpower, or our powers of discernment, of, or persuasion. Our hope is in the one that we're united with, the spirit of truth that dwells within us and has already obtained the victory. The call John gives here isn't simply to watch out for the influence of false prophets. It's not just to give a test, clarity and who is who, in the landscape of the different voices that are competing for our attention. But he also cares for his flock and tells them to take heart. Take heart because a myriad of different voices can't ultimately dilute the truth. Take heart because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Take heart because you are from God and you have overcome these false spirits, these false teachings. It is not a battle that is yet to be decided. You have already overcome because you are in Christ. He isn't telling them what they have to do to overcome He's telling them to watch out, but he's declaring and wanting them to be clear. The victory has already been won. You have overcome them. Take heart because the victory is already secured. We need not fret which message, which gospel will ultimately prevail. Yes, the spirit of the Antichrist is at work in the world and has been for the last 2,000 years but not as some enigmatic global leader bringing on the apocalypse but as ideologies teachings and ways of thinking that stand in opposition to the Lord's anointed we aren't to fear because the spirit of error seems to run unchecked over our airwaves and our Facebook posts, they may seem to win the day for a time, but they will not have the last laugh 
or the final victory. In Christ, death itself has lost its sting, and we have nothing to fear in misleading philosophies. Yes, many currently flock to false teachers and lying spirits. We hear ideas that are out there, and we are aware clearly this is not true. How can people think this? And yet they seem to gather more followers by the day. John lets us know, don't be amazed. They are from the world. Therefore they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. He's letting them know they're speaking their own language. Ah, don't be surprised. That it, it, it's like when, if you're not from here originally, if you're from a different part of the country or the world, you have this experience where you're not used to hearing your accent, your language being spoken, and, and you're in the store and you hear some familiar phrases. Familiar accent, instantly you're drawn to that because you know it. Well, that's what John is saying is like for these false teachers. They, they have plenty who hear the sound of their voice and are drawn to it because they're speaking the same language. And it's not your language. You've been given a different one. And those who are from God They will hear yours. They will listen. This doesn't... The popularity of false messages does not determine the truthfulness of the gospel. Christ's message isn't validated by the number of people that accept it. False teachers may have a lot of followers, but we should not be counted among them. We do not cling to a message based on its popularity. Instead, we hold fast to what is true. This theme of taking heart in adversity is one that John will return to in his final letter. Written from exile on the Isle of Patmos. If you haven't gotten there in your Bibles yet, I don't want to ruin the ending for you. A little bit of a spoiler alert about the book of Revelation. But if you're looking for the cliff notes, you haven't taken a lot of time to study and look through the book of Revelation and how all of this ends, you can boil it down like this. If you want to write it down, it goes like this. The Lamb wins. That's the end of the story. It's not in doubt. The Lamb wins over every threat, over every enemy, over every antichrist, over the beast and the dragon, Satan himself. The Lamb triumphs. Everything broken and corrupted is restored and made right again. His bride is united with him in the ultimate happily ever after. John pulls back for us in that book 
the curtain so that despite false teachers, lying spirits, threats, and outright persecution, those who are Christ's can take heart. Can take heart. Because the end is sure. The victory is assured. We take heart not only because the gospel provides for us a test by which all messages, all teachings are measured, but because the gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation. It's not a litmus test, but our life and hope. The person and work of Christ are not primarily what we judge others by, but, by, but what we cling to in the face of the judgment that we deserve. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. In that flesh He bled and died. And that same flesh was raised to life again that you and I might have the hope of being raised together with Him forever. Friends, there is no better news. There is no greater revelation. Christ has come. He has conquered. And we will reign forever with Him. Would you stand and let's pray together. And if the team would come. Father, we thank you that we have good news to celebrate. That you have come. Lord, we could not have required that of you. And yet you have done it for us. How great you are. What a marvelous gracious, compassionate, merciful God you have revealed yourself to be. Lord, as, as we are bombarded with messages on every side, Lord, help us to give attention to what is true and lasting and eternal. Help us to give glory to you for it. Help us to live in the good of it. Help us to proclaim that same good news to those around it. For this is the only hope, the only ultimate good news for a lost and dying world. And you have kindly revealed it to us. And we ask that you help us to be faithful to it. For your glory, for the good of a lost world. Amen.